it's knowing so much about the content that the guest is going to talk about that there's almost nothing that they're going to say that's going to genuinely come out of left field and surprise me. Now, the conversation is going to be authentic and natural and it could go in a different direction and they can say things that are surprising, but it's not like I'm not sitting there hearing this for the absolute first time. And that's really important as an interviewer because otherwise you end up with that whole like, wow, is that really true? That's amazing. And then the next day you wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you go, that's literally impossible. I totally fell for that. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. My guest on this episode is Jordan Harbinger. He's a networking and relationship expert just like myself, but Harbinger is also one of the rare individuals who's been able to make a living just by podcasting. But as you'll hear, it's not easy to get to the point where he's at, and Jordan is doing way more than just turning on his microphone for an hour every week and then watching Netflix. He's putting in more hours of work per week than the average person, and he knows how important the effort and dedication is in order to have the type of success that his podcast has. So what makes Jordan Harbinger such a successful podcaster? And what are his tips and tricks in doing such good interviews? He was more than willing to answer all of that for us and more. So what do you say we dive right in? Jordan Harbinger, I want to thank you for carving out some time to uh, spend with me and share with the conversations with Connor's audience. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, man. I think the first thanks should go to a uh, Matthew Del Negro for putting us in touch. Matt, someone that I believe that you were on his show and Matt is just a special person. I don't know how well you know him, but him and I had uh, grown up together. I've got nothing but great things to say. He's out there in the Hollywood area with you and I uh, mark my words, one day he will be a leading man. Good. I hope so. Good for him. Somebody's got to do it. Not with my face for radio. <laughs> oh, man. So, Jordan, you're a really interesting individual. You've done a lot. I mean, is there any label in particular that most appeals to you, whether it's a podcaster, pioneer, or even dad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, dad is great. But, you know, I do have like the pet peeve when people put husband and father in their Twitter bio. I don't know what it is, but I find it kind of, I don't know. I'm going to sound like a jerk saying this. There's no way around it. It's saying human, but okay. Congratulations. And what are you that literally not everyone else is that's reading this husband, father. It's sort of this weird virtue signal that doesn't make any sense to me. Cause I'm kind of like, congratulations on tricking someone into spending time with you and then procreating. I don't know. Not that amazing. Right. But maybe I'm just cynical. I'm not usually that cynical, but for that, I just find it weird. So I'm hesitant to label myself like husband, father. It's, it seems strange. I know that those are important roles and maybe that's why people do it. But, you know, what do you offer to the world that isn't just your progeny? I mean, I interview people and I make their wisdom available to other people by having them teach. I have the fascinating people on the Jordan Harbinger show teach something to the listening audience. That's what the value is. Yes, I want to raise good kids and be a good husband to my wife. But the reason other people should care is not that. Very well said. I like that. 
I like that level of articulation. Have you always been so articulate or something that you've worked on? I definitely worked on it. And it's something that comes with explaining things to people in an audio only format over the last 14 years and then having people go, hey, this was unclear. That was unclear. You really have to think like your audience, your listening audience. Is this something that they're going to understand? Is this something that they're going to be able to digest easily in an audio only format? So you build habits of not speaking too quickly, uh, not using words that people have to think about their definition and they lose track of you in the sentence, things like that. So yeah, it's something conscious, but it's more of a set of habits. I'm not sitting here going, okay, what's the next sentence I'm going to say? I'm not planning it out. Yeah. So I'd planned on asking this a little later in the conversation, but I think the timing is good for right now. You have a couple superpowers from my uh, humble opinion. I'll tell you what my perspective of them is, are, whatever the proper wording is, but I'd love to get your perspective on what you think your superpowers are. My superpowers, I'm good at reading or digesting content and then making it digestible for somebody else who has not read that content. So essentially like an education background where I can read a whole book and go, here's what's going to be most interesting for somebody who only has an hour out of the 10 that it took me to read this book. Mm. And here's how I'm going to tease that out of the author of that same book. So that I would say is the sort of the first bit. And the second bit is I think quickly on my feet. I did live radio for so long that there's not a ton of options when you have a caller saying something to you to buy time, right? Like you quickly get canned on Sirius XM satellite radio. If you get a caller and you're just going, oh, hang on, let me think, guys, let me think. Like that doesn't really, that doesn't get you too far these days. How are you able to hone that skill? And then I'll tell you what I think you're super. It's practice, are. man. It's pure practice, but it's also... It's some stress inoculation. A lot of people, when they do live anything, they're like, oh my God, this is live. What happens if I screw up? It's just like speaking. You have to let that nerves wash over you, let the adrenaline wash over you, and then perform anyway. It's a performance mindset. And also, my mind does tend to work a little faster. And I'm not bragging like I'm so smart. I'm not necessarily that smart. I just am able to do the limited amount that I can do and push it to the red line like a Toyota Corolla, it's not a performance vehicle, but if you push the pedal all the way down and you're in that seven or 8,000 RPM zone or whatever that th the thing is on the dial, that thing's still gonna go faster than a skateboard. And I think for most people, they might be high performance vehicles, but they're stuck in first or second gear, they're distracted. I'm not, I'm paying attention to what's going on generally when I'm doing the show, when I'm performing or speaking or anything like that. And so it allows me to react pretty quickly. And then having, good diction thanks to my voice coach and not slurring my words and mixing in my michigan accent all the time that has enabled me to speak quickly and clearly and organize my thoughts clearly but when i talk to somebody like sam harris for example do you, if you know who that is uh, yeah. i spoke to him this morning and one of the questions i asked him was how are you able to think so quickly and clearly and so articulately because when i listen to his podcast Sometimes I just go, man, I got to pause and rewind that. Like that was such a sick burn that what he just said to that person or like the way he articulated that was so good that I laughed. Like the word choice and everything was just funny because he just smacked down this concept and said it in such a funny way. And it's not comedy. He's just 
calmly explaining why somebody is so ridiculously wrong and you just giggle because you're like damn you just got served right you know you know what i'm talking about i know exactly what you're talking about and that's awesome and by the way your toyota analogy i think that's perfect I, there was a gentleman that i worked with in uh, banking and he said listen adam he goes I think 130 is Menza. Is that the IQ Menza? Somewhere I around? don't. I think 130 is like an average adult, isn't it? Oh, really? right, probably. It just shows you how far from 130 I am. Let's just well, say neither <laughs> of us are hitting that anytime soon. Huh? <laughs> so, so, all right, well, let's even say it's 150. So he said he'd rather hire the guy or gal with the IQ of 100 that's at 98 or 99 of their 100 as opposed to the person who's got the 150 IQ and is, at, and is functioning at 110. Oh, you know what? You're right. It's 132 is the minimum that they'll accept on the Stanford Binet scale. I don't know what any of these are. So what? I don't know what the average adult is then. Let's see. You're a quick fact checker. Adult IQ. Yeah, you have to do that because otherwise you get people on your show. And I talk to a lot of scientists and celebrities and things like that. Otherwise, people just make these claims and then you sit there with the assumption that's true and then you're done you find out like no that's literally <laughs> you're so wrong half our conversation was predicated on this ridiculous thing that you read in freaking cosmo and now we both sound like idiots so yeah the average iq is in the us is between 80 and 120 with 100 considered average which to me sounds a little bit low but i'm never going to find out what my own iq is because i think i'm just going to be disappointed with you in that camp speaking of fact checking i don't know if you ever listened to dax shepherd's podcast it's sometimes yeah yeah and i like at the end his sidekick i forgot her name but she does <laughs> monica she does a fact check so she reviews the podcast and like what was discussed so she'd come in right after us at the end and she'd say well this is what the real iq is and she does a great job and i actually enjoy that part because there are times where i'm hearing a conversation i'm like oh, i'm not sure if that's right so i want to get back to your superpowers You've got a few, but I think obviously the guests you're getting is clearly a superpower because you built some pretty amazing relationships to be able to be where you are. I don't think that's anything either of us could argue. Fair? Is that a fair one so far? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, sure. I'll take it. Number two. I'll allow it. <laughs> oh, good looking out, man. <laughs> I think your prep work is probably second to none on the, the from the, the show. So I, I listen to a bunch of podcasts, and, and I think that you – Either you're just so off the charts intelligent, we're gonna, and you're being real humble, and you're able to have the kinds of conversations and ask the kinds of questions that you do with your guests, or the homework that you are doing is just, I, I just can't even imagine the. Yeah, it, trust it me, it's the latter. It's the homework. Like people go, wow, I'll get these letters like, you are off the charts smart. And I go, that is like demonstrably not true. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of elementary, middle school, and high school teachers that would be like, <laughs> lol, you're talking about Jordan Harbinger? I remember that. Yes. So that's not it. It's knowing so much about the content that the guest is going to talk about that there's almost nothing that they're going to say that's going to genuinely come out of left field and surprise me. Now, the conversation's going to be authentic and natural, and it could go in a different direction, and they can say things that are surprising, but it's not like I'm not sitting there hearing this for the absolute first time. And that's really important as an interviewer because otherwise you end up with that whole like, wow, is that really true? That's amazing. And then the next day you wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you go, that's literally impossible. I totally fell for that. <laughs> and then it's in the show. You have no chance to sort of contradict it, counteract it. So if I'm researching something, I look up the guest, I look up their Wikipedia, I look up their negative reviews on Amazon. I want to look on Reddit, see what people think of the book. I might even look up another subject matter expert and go, 
Is this person right? What do you think of their work? And then they're like, nah, that guy's an idiot. Let me tell you why. And then I'll take those criticisms or critiques and I'll bring them up during the show. And people go, wow, Jordan's thought so deeply about this. And it's like, well, no, I've thought deeply about what other people have thought deeply about this topic. And I got their thoughts and then I made sure that they made sense. And now I'm rephrasing them. So I'm putting together a really complex puzzle and most of the pieces are already made. Like I'm putting a few of those in there, right? My own questions based on my own curiosity. But at the end of the day, I'm just dumping out a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and maybe like a hundred of the pieces are blank and I'm drawing them in myself. But the other ones, the other 990 pieces, those are just in the box and they're just not in order. I'm putting the puzzle together before the interview. That's what I'm doing. That is great. How much prep work does it take to, to I mean, obviously it varies, but uh, is there a typical time allotment? Because you're cranking out a good amount of these interviews. Yeah, it's 10 or 20 hours per interview. So since I'm doing three, well, I'm doing two interviews a week and then Friday I give advice because I get a lot of listener questions, people asking me everything from how to negotiate their salary to my mother-in-law is being attacked by the mafia, like can, how do we fix this problem, whatever it was. And so I get a lot of those and I research the answers to those, contact experts, things like that. So I'm working at least a 60 hour, nah, I would say I'm working a 60 hour work week, but you know, what, 20 plus of those hours are me outside walking, listening to an audiobook, making a phone call. So it's not like I'm not just busting my ass in front of some typewriter, like a writer. <laughs> but you're being prepared. And now, right. my third, and I think this is probably the, if I had to kind of claim one of your superpowers to be the ultimate, I think is your ability to regurgitate what somebody else has said. Like, you mean re like paraphrase and, yes. and clean up? Well, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, that's, I'll give you that. I try to find what the guest or whoever it is saying and then say, so it's basically like X, Y, and Z and then make it really simple. That's what educators do, right? They take really complicated science or something like that and they go, okay, so it's kind of like this and that and the other thing. And then the sixth graders go, oh yeah, now I get it. And that's what you want to do when you're trying to tell people a concept that normally takes 13 hours of a book to illustrate. I want to do it in like a few minutes. Explain this. Wow, that's really complex. Is it like this and this? You use an analogy like I did with the jigsaw puzzle. And I'm saying, look, the audience just wants to see the picture and they don't have the box. All they have are 10,000 pieces laying around. So I put the puzzle together. That's my prep. And then when I come to the interview, I'm just slowly unveiling the finished product which is what was normally on the front of the box. And the author themselves can't really do that because they're so deep in their own work, they're not necessarily good at teaching what they're talking about. So you read a book about science, some kind of science, or you talk to an athlete or something like that, they don't necessarily know how to illustrate that picture themselves, right? They just are that picture. So I'm building that for the audience. I'm helping them visualize or metaphorically visualize that picture. And so that's the key is like, I just know how to put those puzzles together well, because the audience doesn't have time, money, inclination. I want to do it in an entertaining way. I want to do it in a way that's memorable so they don't just stop the show and go, that was good. What the hell was that about again? That's why I make worksheets and show notes for every episode of the Jordan Harbinger show, because I want people to go, yes, I learned so many interesting things. What were they? Oh, shoot, I can't remember. Here's the worksheet, right? It was this and this. Hammer those things home. Make it worthwhile. So it's not just sort of like edutainment. I mean, it, I guess it is that, but there's a take home. There's a little trinket you can take home with you in your brain. 
It's great. And I love, and I want to know how you, again, how much of it was like a nature versus nurture, like how much work it took to get to there. But also something that I think you do well with that is it's smooth. So there are times where I try, I actively try to do it. I'm terrible at it, but I'm like, I don't want to interrupt their flow. So there was something that I wanted to regurgitate what you were just saying, <laughs> the irony, but it, I didn't, I didn't want to interrupt it and kind of lose the flow of where we were going. So is that, again, how much of this is conscious? And now I, I guess it's fairly natural for you, but was it always? No, I don't think so. But I'm trying to remember if there was a point at which I was like, ta-da, and I could magically regurgitate information well in spoken word format for an audience. And I can't really think of when that would have been. So no, it was not natural for me, but I can't really tell you how it happened. So therein lies the result of practice and repetition that maybe is masquerading as talent. <laughs> I love your humility, by the way. <laughs> what podcasters or interviewers have you learned the most from? And, and like, what have been some of those takeaways, those magical takeaways? That's a good question. I'd say that Sam Harris is somebody definitely to be learned from because he thinks so deeply on his subjects. And when he does his solo episodes, I'm always like, dang, he wrote all that and that was amazing. And I could never write anything like that. And it was just a barnstormer. And I love that. And and there's another guy who nobody's ever heard of, basically, called David Smalley. And he used to run a show called Dogma Debate. Now it's called the David C. Smalley Show. And he often will have like a very religious person on or somebody who's like diehard QAnon or whatever. And he'll slowly and calmly debate them, but it's never emotional. They're always very civil. And he just gives people all this rope and they eventually hang themselves. And you're just like, this is so skilled. He is, of course, an eight, like a hardcore atheist, but he grew up in a very poor religious family. So people will say, well, like, well, in the Bible, it says this and this. And he's like, well, in Matthew 3.16, it says this. And then, but if you go to this other book in the Old Testament, it says that right over here. So he's got like the whole thing memorized. So all these zealots are kind of like, oh, crap, you know this stuff better than me. <laughs> and it's just pleasure to watch because or listen to because these people come in all kind of high and mighty, even preachers. And he's just like, they're like, yeah, well, I can't remember exactly what this is. And, he, and they'll say something and he goes, well, what you're doing, you're saying Matthew, you know, 316, but you said it wrong. It's actually the other way around. And the guy's just like, oh, or they'll be like, no, you're wrong. And he's like, well, let's look it up. And sure enough, verbatim, he's got them like depending on the edition of the Bible. They're looking at, and I'm like, this is a guy who has spent his whole life preparing to debate these people because he knows the stuff better than they do. That's great. So is, has he been on your show? The name didn't sound familiar. Yeah, uh, a long time ago, but no, no, not recently, because since he normally debates religious folks and politicians, it's not really in our wheelhouse at the Jordan Harbinger show, but there's going to be, we'll eventually do something just because he's very, he's a great debater yeah. and there's a skill involved there. Yeah, there is. So what makes you decide who to have as a, a guest on your show? Well, I look pretty almost solely for what I am personally interested in. And that's really it. A lot of people are like, oh, how do I decide what niche I want to be in and all this stuff? Look, there are profitable niches for sure. But the, the way you have a long, like a long living career, something with longevity, a show with longevity, is you have to find something that you enjoy talking about. And I don't know that many people that only enjoy talking about the same thing 
for 20 years. There are a few of them, but it's rare. So for me, I have to follow my own interests. And, and usually the question is, how far of a departure is this from the usual suspects on the show, right? Is it going to be something where people go, wow, that was cool. You never really do shows like that. Or is it going to be like, what are you doing? This is totally random. So an example of something in the wheelhouse is if I have an expert on about what happens in your brain when you take the birth control pill and how that changes your relationships, that makes sense to put next to a psychologist which makes sense to put next to somebody who studies the psychology of marketing, which makes sense to put next to a behavioral economist like Dan Ariely. And then I can go a little bit further off the beaten path by having like a mafia enforcer. And people go, this is really random, but it's really cool. And you're sort of talking about the psychology of a guy in that job firsthand, because the guy's right here in front of you. But then I won't go and have on somebody who's an expert in gardening. I'm not interested in gardening, but let's say that I were. I don't really think it makes sense because the audience is going to go, hey, this is kind of your hobby. There's no through line. And I see people try and do this. They'll have a productivity podcast or something. And then the next episode, they're telling jokes. And I'm like, you're going to fail. Nobody cares. Your, your sense of humor is not shared by a crowd of people. And this is a real example. And I, I remember talking to the guy later and I go, you're doing a show about productivity. In theory, everyone listening to this is looking for the absolute best use of their time. And the next episode, what you did is talked nothing about productivity and something that was completely subjective, namely your sense of humor with your dad jokes. How many of your listeners are sensitive to their time being wasted? Probably all of them, if it's a productivity show. What percentage of your listeners share your sense of humor? 20% if you're lucky. So 80% of your audience didn't think that was a good use of their time and is specifically looking to use their time in a better way, a more efficient way. And he's like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause he lost all his listeners. He just lost them. He was running a bunch of experiments and I go, man, I get it. You ran experiments, but my experiments have to be like within arm's reach of what the audience is going to be interested in. Otherwise you are completely wasting everyone's time. And it's not my time that matters. It's the audience's time that matters. I have to earn every minute of their attention because otherwise they just pick up their phone and look at Instagram or they change to a different podcast or they turn on the TV or the radio or Netflix. The talk show hosts of old in like the 80s and 90s, they could do whatever the hell they wanted because what are you going to do? If you don't turn on Larry King, you just go to bed. So he can afford to do whatever the hell he wants and waste your time. And people go, ugh, this is what's on TV. The other channel has news. So that's it. Yeah, you, you nailed it. It's really interesting to your point about how competitive it is for eyeballs and ears and stuff. I, I just learned just this week how many podcasts there are. So, so you're fighting for every second. Do you have any idea how many there are, are out there? I think there's like 1.3 million podcasts. It's now one as of this week, as of Monday. 1.6 there you go and it was a million like earlier this year i think or maybe late last year yeah no this year it's going six it's going 600 percent do or 60 percent rather sorry i told you i'm not that 130 or 150 whatever it is <laughs> and then take a guess with the average length like how long until they get it's called like pod fade or something yeah like tell people give up and stop yeah. doing their own show it, what is it nine episodes nine. or 13 Nine. Yep. Nine. Right. Yeah. So it's funny because people will go, I'm just not getting any traction. Okay. How long have you been at it? Well, it's episode seven. 
you have 107 more before you should even be, you have 307 more before you should be thinking about why you're not getting any traction, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Like, yeah. No, it's a, episode yeah. seven, dude, I'm surprised. So you're just now learning that you need to friggin' turn your microphone on before you start talking and hit record. You don't have any experience in the game. When I was, I think I was seven years in, I remember thinking, I'm getting better at this. I should probably get better equipment and stop spitting into the microphone and <laughs> learn how to talk more and maybe practice interviewing and maybe read the book before I do the show instead of just winging it, all that stuff. So whenever I hear people go, man, we're just not getting any traction. Look, if you're Kim Kardashian and you've got a, a podcast out there and it's not getting any traction, yeah, you should be asking questions because you have a multi-billion dollar marketing arm behind you. There's minimum eight figures being put into the marketing and production of a podcast with you. If you're recording this in your garage and it's two dudes talking about Boston sports and you're sharing one microphone and there's burps in it, like you're not going to get any traction anytime soon. So don't even think about answering that. Don't even ask that question until you're ready to start taking it seriously. That's why I never recommend people start their podcast as a business. Cause I'm thinking it's like you are literally entering one of the toughest and most difficult areas to monetize even on the internet you're better off collecting your belly button lint and selling it on etsy <laughs> and and so well i mean so well said it, it's so true again the competition you need to have i forgot how many downloads for the cpm figure to start calculating and then you're still not getting paid that much until i mean you've got like that massive following market rate is 25 dollars cpm which means cost per thousand and your network, let's say your network takes like 30%. Let's say you have a good deal and your network takes 30%. Usually they're going to take like half, but let's say they only take 30%. If you have 20,000 listeners, that's 20 M's, right? So that's 20, 20 times 25. You're getting $500 for that ad, except you're not. You're getting 70% of that $500. So when you have 20,000 people, which is like a sellout of many smaller theater venues or sorry not smaller medium to large theater venues anywhere in the world you're getting 350 bucks for that right so that's pretty bad and now you're thinking well wait 20,000 how long this isn't 20,000 Instagram followers somebody who has a million Instagram followers would be extremely lucky to have a show that has even 30 40 50,000 downloads per episode and that's if they really work at it so by the time, if you have 50,000 people, that ad on that show is worth $1,250. And you're not getting that, remember. You're getting 70% of that. So you're getting 875. That's if 50,000 people are listening to you every single week. That is not big money. That's not quit your job money by any stretch. If you do one show a week, you're getting $3,500 a month with 50,000 people. If you're a singer and you can sell 50,000 people on tickets in a venue, you are a multi-millionaire yeah and, and think about how much money goes into the promotion of that to be able to yeah you know you didn't we didn't even back out that kind of money sure to to be able to get there by the time people are full-time podcasting they've been at it for a huge amount of time how good does it feel that you've been able to get to that point like and, and at what point were you able to kick back and be like or not kick back because i don't think that's in your dna no but, you know, or at least to be able to kind of be like whoo wow i'm doing what i want to do and and i'm making it and this is my job to be able to interview amazing people and pick their brains and share it with the world 
I think about that a lot. Whenever I'm whining about something, I think about it. Whenever I'm too tired to continue doing something that I need to get done, I think about it. And whenever I see other people who are less fortunate, and I don't mean like homeless people begging for change. I just mean friends of mine that say something like, oh, my kid took his first steps. And I go, oh, congratulations. Did you get a video? Oh, no, I was at work. And I go, oh, man, I'm never going to miss anything like that. Because I'm in the house all day, for better or for worse. Now, yes, I could not be, I could be upstairs when they do something and they're downstairs, but I can run downstairs and catch it. I'm rarely am I doing that. But I know a lot of, I got a lot of friends. I used to be a lawyer. So I have a lot of friends who are consultants or working in council now. And they're like, their thing is, you know, oh, I hit a million airline miles finally this year. And I'm like, holy crap, are you gone three, four days a week? Yeah, mostly, but I try to be home on at least one day a week. And I'm like, geez, brutal. So the fact that those guys are busy, they can't be at home, their time isn't really theirs, they're really trading time for money, and then they kind of try to get a 5%, 10%, whatever it is, raise every year if they're lucky, and then maybe they get some stock options. Like, that is great. And those are people with good careers. Yeah. Imagine somebody who doesn't have one. And so I think all the time, like, wow, I'm pretty lucky that, I mean, it is a dice roll if I'm putting on pants twice a week. Like, it's usually not the case. Yeah. And this is, yeah, it's COVID, so it's a little different, COVID times, but I'm fully insulated from pretty much everything. Look, if the economy totally tanks, yeah, I'm in trouble, but it's a profitable business. There's a lot of cash flow. There's low overhead. The timing is really flexible. I'm the boss. Sometimes I feel like I get paid too much money I know that sounds weird and kind of silly, but the other day I was like really tired and someone said, hey, can you do this really quick for me? It's an emergency. And I did it. And what it was was I needed to record two minutes of ads that were going to go into these unsold ad slots. And my wife goes, come on, cheer up. That was worth $4,000. And I was like, you know what I would have done for $4,000 when I was like 25 I mean, that's, that was like, when I was a Wall Street attorney, that was what I made in like a week. Something I did with like a glass of Diet Coke in my hand and scratching my what with the other. And I was just kind of like, this is what privilege looks like. I have to appreciate the hell out of that because yes, I've worked really hard for it, but I can't really, a lot of what happened to me is luck. I found podcasting super early. I was able to double down on that. I didn't quit. I didn't get taken down by the 08 recession. I didn't stay a lawyer for a while because of the 08 recession. I was interested in things other people were interested in. I was able to develop these skills. There's a lot of things that look like that's just what happens when you work hard, but is quite lucky, quite fortunate. I mean, luck is the, re I'm going to respectfully disagree. Luck is the, the residue of hard work. So, I mean, you did touch on that. You did stay at it and you kind of had your nose, you kept at it. You just, there's something to be said about that. And you had an opportunity and you pounced on it. <laughs> Having those instincts, there's probably something that you did in your life prior that showed you the, like a spidey sense, if you will. And you took it and you ran with it. There's some of that. Yeah. But also like, why did I find podcasting in 2006? Because a friend told me about it. Why? Because I asked how to upload a file to the internet. Why? Because I was teaching a class and people kept asking me the same questions and I was burning it to CD. So like that is a for series of fortunate events. Now, would I have been in a position to do to capitalize on it if I hadn't been teaching a class at a law school? No, but there were a lot of people that taught classes at a law school and did a better job and are not making 
they don't have a seven figure business talking to people about books or talking to athletes. Yeah, but you were doing, you were recording. I, mean, I forgot you were going into bars too, weren't you? Like video recording them too, and like you I were, was. You, you were you were providing value. And yeah, I was recording like live conversations that I was having with people at bars. Yeah, I was doing a lot of that stuff. So yeah, the thing that wasn't luck was my dad taught me to just work my ass off all the time. And I tend to get really obsessed with things and then work really hard and figure out every nuance. So right now people are like, oh man, how do you grow your podcast? And I'm like, well, some of it is create good content that sticks. That's a huge part of it. That's largely practice. But the rest of it is trying to crack the code on marketing something. And I know a lot, of, I'm sure you and I both know a lot of people that are marketers and they're really good at marketing, but their products actually suck. And so they're constantly trying to sort of trick people into buying their thing. And I don't have to do that. Like if I can just get my show in front of enough people, they stick around in large numbers and advertisers pay for that. And that's the result of hard work. That part is the result of hard work. Now, and something that I'll share with the audience that you and I were talking about prior, and, and I think it's worth pointing out is for those that are, that are listening, I had a great experience just my setting this up, this conversation up. I mean, Jen was fantastic, extremely responsive. I mean, just really professional, checking in. I mean, you, it checked all the boxes. And I think that says a lot. You instilled that. You put a process together and it, you made it just very smooth. And there's a lot to be said about that where most people are not doing that. Well, I appreciate that. And I will definitely tell Jen as well, because it's a thankless job to be somebody's scheduler, for lack of a better word. No, her title. I love her title. I, oh, I forgot what it was. Aide de camp. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Can you articulate better than I can what that means, though? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. she. it used to say assistant. But then people were like, oh, I talked to your VA in the Philippines or something. Or they would be like, you know, can you do this and this and this? And I was like, oh, people aren't really treating her. So I was like, why don't you be the chief operating officer? And she's like, eh, it's a little pretentious for a company that has like six people in it. And I, I agreed with that. I'm always laughing. We always laugh when we see people that go like, oh, yeah, I'm the CEO of Jordan Harbinger Incorporated. That's like their name. And we're like, you're the only person that works there. We know that. So we didn't choose that. And I, we were looking for another title. And I was interviewing this singer and he had brought a friend with him and we said, oh, so are you like his publicist or assistant? And he goes, well, I'm more like an aide de camp. And I was, we were like, oh, we got to remember that. That's really good. And the whenever I have military generals and admirals and things like that on the show, on the Jordan Harbinger show, they're always like, hey, your aide de camp told me this and this. And they'll always laugh and they're like, that's a very appropriate title because this is exactly what my aide de camp does as well. Yeah, that's so great. Oh, and I saw that, I was just, I responded like, that's the best title ever, by the way. <laughs> Nobody uses it, right? So it's no. kind of people go like, huh, what's that? Aide de camp, that sounds like a big deal, but isn't super pretentious, could be tongue in cheek, could be not. So nobody really goes like, look at these yahoos with their very cool sounding title. It's just kind of a thing that sticks out because assistant almost sounds like greeter at Walmart. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it doesn't sound like somebody you expect to get something done. That's important. Correct. It, well, and I found the humor in it too, because an aide de camp is not, you're not supposed to be known, like no one should know who you are. So as a, as an, it's just supposed to be like an undercover, almost like not undercover, but then you're kind of outing who you are an aide de camp too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a personal assistant or secretary to a person of high rank, usually like police, government, military, or, and why we laughed at it, a member of a royal family or a head of state, right? Like, so it is sort of pretentious, but it's like ridiculously so. So nobody's really going, oh, look at this guy. They're just, oh, that's funny. That's why I thought it was hilarious. I was loving that. <laughs> it's like the foremost personal aide. Like, look, if I ever hire anyone else and it's a guy, I'm going to call them my valet, right? Like those OG like British gentlemen had a valet in the 1850s and it was like the person that shaved them or something. I don't even know. Carry their coat. I don't know. Like that stuff's funny to me. But really, aide de camp, I think it literally means helper in the camp. I think that's all it means. Oh, really? It's like a French term for somebody who helps in camp. We need Monica from Dax's show to do a fact check. So we'll, uh -huh. after the show, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> so in the spirit of just like a positive experience, what are some of the biggest pet peeves that you have with guests that come onto your show? People who don't read the instructions, it's like, look, I realize you do a ton of podcasts. There's no reason that you shouldn't know that you have to plug in an external microphone, especially when we offer to send you one. Yes, you need headphones, but I do Fox News and all I use is my iPhone. Well, Fox News doesn't care about their quality because you're on for three minutes. You're doing this for an hour and a half. People are going to get annoyed that there's an echo and your cat isn't in the background and your dog's barking. Like that kind of stuff. And some of it's lack of media training, but other stuff is pure arrogance where it's like, oh, I never use headphones. Okay, well, you don't have a choice. The technology doesn't work as well without headphones. So I cancel stuff and people will get indignant, things like that. That's annoying. The other thing is not paying attention to the calendar invite. It'll say 90 minute block. And then somebody 30 minutes in, I go, excuse me, are you texting? Do you need to handle something? Because I can hear them typing. And they go, yeah, my wife's wondering how much longer this is because she wants to go to lunch. And I'm going, well, you got another hour. So settle in there, buddy. Turn off your crappy phone and sit your ass down. And then they're like, oh, well, can we shorten it? And I'm like, yeah, we can stop right now. But I'm not going to market your book to 158,000 people. If you can't sit for more than 20 minutes, like that's not my responsibility. So a lot of people think that coming on a show like mine, they're doing us a favor because they're special and we're just a lowly media outlet. And it's like, no, you don't understand. I'm not trying to find a blog, fill up SEO content for my university's blog website or whatever. This isn't a student newspaper. This is an opportunity for you to talk to a huge audience of people that if you don't screw it up, are gonna buy your stuff. And to treat this like you just have a lot of them, I've been known to just say, you know what, we can stop right here. And they're like, oh, really? Great. And I just delete it. And they go, hey, when is it coming out? And I go, it's not. What do you mean? You gave me 20 minutes. It's never coming out. I'm annoyed that I read it. And then the publicist is like, you kind of have to teach those people a lesson because usually the publicist doesn't know that's happening or they don't realize because they've done exactly zero homework that this is a good opportunity that they shouldn't screw up. So I've heard, and this is somewhat funny for me, there's a lot of publicists that I love working with, and there are some, especially ones that work with certain publishers. And a friend of mine who's an author was at dinner with a bunch of publicists and other authors. And all the authors were like, yeah, my publicist hates working with Jordan Harbinger, hates working with Jordan Harbinger. And I was laughing because I go, oh, no, I was upset because I was like, oh, my God, I work with publicists all the time. Who was it? Who do I have to straighten out? And it was like a who's who of like these ridiculously unprepared, entitled 24 year old nobodies who are like, this isn't my forever job. I don't have to be on time. Those kinds of people. And I thought, 
oh, good. I don't want you to ever pitch me again. I want you to think that I'm a pain in the ass because all I'm asking for is for you to show up on time and be prepared. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to spend 10 or 20 hours doing it. The least you can do is spend five minutes reading the email. So that kind of thing is annoying. And I used to put up with it. And now I just go, I'm deleting this. My audience is too good for this. It's not me who's too good for this. It's not me who's pissed off and feeling entitled or upset. The problem is you don't do as good of a work. And I'm bringing this to 158, whatever thousand people that are giving me an hour. It is insulting to them for me to let you go doing crap audio quality or not knowing what's going to happen or cutting the interview in half. We're going to spend the time for you. You can't spend the time with us. And I look at it like this. Let's say it's 150,000 people that end up downloading that episode. I spend 10 or 20 hours prepping, but each of those people is about to spend, if the episode's an hour long, that's 150,000 hours of time in addition to my time that is now wasted because you couldn't spend 10 freaking minutes? Hell no. I am not making that trade. You are not that important. I don't care if you're Barack Obama. You're not that important that you're going to waste 150,000 hours of other people's time. Hell no, especially not my people. I love that. I love your passion meter just shot through the roof. By the way, yeah, <laughs> I get fired up. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and it's almost what we were talking about before. Before we went on about valuing time and the importance of you get get your ego out of the way. Your ego is not your amigo, and clearly that's the case here. And I'm glad to hear that you will cut them short because some of these people they need a they need a check. And when it comes to the publicist, I'm a little surprised because. You're known, at least just through some of the people that we know in common, I'm told that you've got a pretty good like prep funnel, I think is what they called it. Yeah. Do you mind explaining what that sure. is? Sure. So I have the publicist generally, depending on the guest, they have to fill out a form and the form includes bullet points and ideas that they want to communicate. And a lot of times the publicist will be lazy and they'll just cut and paste like the book description. They'll cut and paste something from the website. They don't write the actual answers to the question. They just cut and paste a bunch of marketing crap from the press release. And I just delete those and they'll come back and go, what, have you given any thought to this? And I'll go, no, but you also didn't give any thought to this. And they'll be like, what are you talking about? And I'll go, you didn't answer any of the questions or anything. You just copied and pasted the website. I can Google this author. I don't need you to Google it and then paste it into my Google form, my prep form. I need you to answer the question. So that's why the publicists that are lazy as hell, they don't like working with me because they don't want to do the work, right? They're kind of thinking, I'm going to bring this person to a media outlet. And a lot of them don't think of podcasts as a real media outlet. That's less so now that they realize that podcasts are the only media outlet that actually matters. <laughs> it used to be like, well, I'm putting them on TV earlier. And I'm like, I don't care. Nobody's going to buy your book when you're on this show. You're going to get two sales from the daytime whatever it is show that this person is going to be on for five minutes so you can spend as much time prepping for that as you want it's going to give you a nice little ego pat on the back validation i got my client on tv we got to go to msnbc this morning no one's buying your book from that oh you got them on 38 fm stations or am radio stations on the morning show great no one is going to buy that book because of that now, if you're going to do that at the expense of doing a good job with podcasts, that's a recipe for a book that fails. I know plenty of author friends of mine where they just can't get on any podcasts because their publicist didn't try. They don't sell anything. They don't sell anything. Nobody who buys books and reads is also getting their books and news in four minute sound bites on CNN. They're not. They're listening to podcasts. 
If I listen to you for an hour and it's fascinating, I am running to buy that book. If I see you in a five minute segment and then I see you in another one where you say the exact same thing again, I'm not really that compelled to buy your, I'm just not, you're not interesting. You don't have enough time. It's not your fault. The radio, the television, they don't give you enough time to get me hooked. This is just snackable crap for somebody who's waiting in an airport lounge. So when now publicists are, are very concerned with podcasts, but before that they just didn't care. So it's interesting to see how now media, new media like podcasts and digital has gone from being like this redheaded stepchild of media, fake media, and is now really the only thing that matters. Now there are sort of closed door meetings among agents and publicists in publishing where they say things like, look, here are the five podcasts they're gonna go on, and then yeah, in addition to that, we're gonna get a couple TV spots. They know now what matters. And I find that interesting. But, you know, there's a whole lot of people that work in the publicity industry or the publishing industry that either refuse to believe it or are just hell bent on pretending that all they have to do is send out a press release and it's going to sell a bunch of books. And I'll tell you, if you're an author, never rely on the publicist that's hired by the publisher. Your book will absolutely fail. They'll blame you. And it's because of them. I routinely have guests on the show and I say, hey, this took a long time. And they go, what do you mean? And I go, well, I tweeted at you and that's how we made this happen. But before that, I sent 14 emails to your publicist. Here they are. And they'll go, are you kidding? I'll show them the thread. And they'll go, oh, man, that makes me mad. I'm so sorry. And I'll go, don't worry about it. How's your book tour going? And they go, it's terrible. I'm, I've done four media appearances. And I go, you know why? Because everybody who emails you is hitting a dead end. And I doubt that this person's doing any work. If they can't even answer their email for incoming pitches, imagine they're outgoing. It doesn't exist. Yeah. I've had a couple bad experiences with publicists and I, I, I don't have enough data points like you do, but the I've had bad experience. I mean, there's a gentleman that's coming on my show and he's a best-selling author. He's a very big name and he's got two publicists and they know it's like one hand not talking to the other. So I've had to set the schedule up multiple times because they're not communicating. When it comes to the show outline, they're not preparing them and it's just been a disaster. So I don't know if that's just industry standard. I, I, it's not. There's a lot of really good publicists. So I want to sort of clarify because I deal with great publicists all the time and they're like, hey, I listened to this episode that you had with so-and-so and it was so good and I really like that. You'd probably be interested in these people. What do you think? And I go, well, these people, yes, these people know this person. I'm on the fence. Fill out the form. And they fill out the form and they write their own language in there and it's good and then they go do you want to get on a call with the author would that help and i'm like yes that would help it's a sense of entitlement and frankly a lot of people also in the publicity industry the real issue here is there's a lot of sort of like 20 somethings that go hey this isn't my forever job this is my pretend job before my band takes off this is my pretend job before i make it in hollywood this is my pretend job while I'm in grad school for whatever it is. And so they don't care. They're not going to get fired. Their manager is swamped or just totally absent-minded. They don't care. So you have to be really careful if you're an author, because unless you're a celebrity author, the publicist is just, it, they've been assigned to you and 30 other authors. They're going to send out the press release and answer any incoming email if you are lucky and then they're going to schedule it. And that's it. And it's taken me years to get through that. And I, I used to get really insulted by it. And then I talked to Jimmy Kimmel and Chelsea Handler about it. And they were like, the worst part of doing a show is booking guests. And I went, really? 
that never gets better? And they're like, no, it never gets better. It never gets better. Conan O'Brien was saying, oh, I hate booking guests. They always flake and then this doesn't work out. And I'm like, okay, I've become pretty zen with it. Cause I'm like, if Chelsea Handler, Howard Stern, Conan O'Brien and Jimmy Kimmel say that this is an impossibly annoying part of their job, it will never be something that I don't have to worry about. So I can sort of ironically, I can stop worrying about it because it's never going to go away. So me waiting to get up to the next rung on the ladder and then maybe I won't have this problem. It's not real. It's going to keep happening. So all I do is just try and work around it or forget about it. And you know what? It's a bummer because I have to work extra hard for some really good guests from my audience. It actually ends up raising the bar. So I should thank these people because what happens is if you're a mediocre guest and I have to work really hard to get you, I'm just going to give up and go to somebody else who's a good guest that's easier to get. So I end up with these great guests that I work hard for, these good guests that I don't work that hard for, and then everybody else, they just aren't worth the effort. And so like because somebody who's really easy to book but not that great could be pretty tempting. But instead, I just go, eh, this isn't going to work. So it's funny to see that because I end up booking a lot of really great people. Because if I'm going to work my ass off to book someone, I'm just going to shoot for the stars. Good for you. Yeah, no, I like that. And then and you've weeded out. Now you're at a point where you can weed out a lot of people. How yeah. Long did, how long did it take to get to that? I mean, it takes a long time. You have to build your numbers up because really what they're looking for, they don't care that you really want them on. They don't care that you're a big fan. They don't care that you've read all the books. They're like, how many books are we going to sell if we put this person on the show? That's all they care about. Yeah. Well, what about like, so again, you've built some amazing relationships throughout the years. How many people do you end up that come on the show that you end up continuing the relationship or is it really just more transactional? It's rare that I end up continuing the relationship and that's not because I don't value it or that I obviously I teach networking here. So that's really a part of it. But a lot of folks, the scientists and things like that, I keep in touch with pretty regularly. The generals, military officers, I keep in touch with pretty regularly. But, you know, celebrities, you're usually so insulated from them that you don't end up keeping in close touch with them, which turns out to be kind of okay. I mean, really, what I would say that the most underwhelming group of people is celebrities, right? Not that they're bad people or anything, but like you build them up in your mind and then after you start meeting them, you realize this is just another kind of middle-aged alcoholic that has kids that don't like them. It's not, there's not much going on here once you get off the topic of their music or their latest novel not that every celebrity is vapid like that but of course plenty of them are and if you get away from the vanity of being like i hung out with so and so last night you just stop caring you do you just stop caring my, my experience with some of these folks has been the people that they surround themselves with mm -hmm. and, and that's that they're yes men or yes women whatever you want to call them and that they are just kind of placating to their egos and it's a shame but some of the people though again like again similar to like what we were talking about prior to hitting the record those that made it then you can connect with those people because they can relate they they probably did seven years of work prior before getting their big or seven years of podcasting before they really hit it and speaking of which you have an aha moment was there a tipping point whether it was a tipping point guest or a tipping point thing in your life that happened? I had Robert Greene on the seventh anniversary episode of what now is the Jordan Harbinger show. And this is like in 2013 or something like that. And he was the first person to say, hey, I do a lot of media interviews and this was one of the best ones that 
I've ever had. So you should, you know, be proud of yourself. Cause I think I asked like, Hey, what can I improve or something like that? He was just being nice. And I was like, wow, if he thinks it's good, then maybe this is something I'm actually good at. And that was important for me. That was a turning point. Cause that was when I was like, I'm going to get voice lessons. I'm going to get new equipment. I'm going to make sure that the show sounds good and research acoustics. I'm going to read the book for every guest. Cause one of the reasons he probably thought this interview was good because is because I read the book beforehand. And so maybe that's what made the difference. And so there, that was the turning point at which I was like, I, even if I am talented, which I didn't think I was back then either reading the book really made all the difference. And I remember telling my wife, oh, but I can't read the book for every guest. And she goes, yeah, I mean, I guess it would take more time. And I was just, I sat there and I went, I'm lying to myself if I think that I can just get away with not reading the book for every guest and do just as well. Like this is the next level. The next level is doing the work, doing the prep, not rationalizing that I don't have time. Cause I, of course I do. Of course I can make the time. Like if this is what's important and this is what needs to get done, then this is what needs to get done. Whereas most people go, I can't just read the whole book. I have seven other things to do. That's what journalists do. They go, I don't have time for all this. Look at all these assignments that I have. Okay, well, I'm not a journalist. I'm an interviewer. If I'm not doing good interviews, I'm useless. So what's the thing here? Oh, you don't have time? Why? You watching Netflix? What are you doing that's more important than the core craft of preparation for your the thing that pays the bills? In your audience, like you said. Yeah, like, like if I'm going to do an 80% job because I didn't read the book... Is that valuing my audience's time? Not really. Now I'm going to waste, I'm doing an 80, I'm doing a B minus or a B plus job for 160,000 people, whatever it is that day. That doesn't make any sense. Why shouldn't I go for a hundred percent job? Why? Oh, because I want to go to the gym or want to get some sushi and I didn't plan my day out well enough. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I listen to my podcasts afterwards. I don't know. And it's painful to me. Like, like I'll yeah. listen to this and uh, I've enjoyed my conversation with you, but hearing on my end is going to be real tough. Do you do the same? No, I do occasionally, but not every single one. No. It's good for you. It's, it, it, I mean, <laughs> it, it hurts. I usually listen to a couple every month or something like that and make sure that it went well and see where I've missed opportunities. But bear in mind, I'm also getting like coaching on these things. So I have other people that are listening to them and giving you? feedback. It's not like I just don't know what's in there. What are your coaches telling you? What are the things that you need to improve on? And, and what do you think that those that are, you do listen to, obviously sounds like you're an aficionado yourself. So you listen to a bunch of uh, podcasts. What are most people in your opinion, not doing as good as they could be? Yeah, it's always prep. It's always prep. I mean, look, can somebody be funnier? Yeah. Can somebody be quicker on their feet? Yeah. But that's like, that just comes with practice. It's usually a choice that they've made to just not do the work. It's almost exclusively that. Hey, what about this and this? Well, as I say in the book, blah, 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 blah. And I go, I read the book and you should probably follow along with this. Oh, you're going to ask a random question that just occurred to you? Okay. Oh, you're not going to go down that thread anymore because you don't know what else to say? All right. I mean, it's always about the work. You can have somebody that's not even a good interviewer at all. And if they've read the book and they have questions based on the book and they're listening to the answers to the questions they're getting, they're going to be way better than one of those like random comedians who's like, I have a podcast and, and didn't read the book and is trying to joke around with the guy and waste his time. People who try and lean on their talent, it's always just so painful. <laughs> and what kind of feedback are your guests giving you? Do they tell you afterwards? Like, wow, you know what? That was a good interview. Like you asked. I mean, some do and some don't like some. I don't usually go, hey, tell me how good that was. <laughs> but I, I like some. I like it, but I'm not going to fish for it. Yeah. And often I'll say, 
a few days later or even after the interview, is there anything that I could have done to improve the booking or podcast process? I don't say, did you like the interview? Of course they're going to say yes. And if they offer a compliment, hey, great, cool, I'll take it. But, you know, rarely does it make, there's not a whole lot of value in like, this was fun, this was good, okay, great. I, I want them to say, yeah, I found this software really annoying to use. Or I, I emailed and like you didn't reply to me about this and that and the other thing. And I go, oh, we better check our spam folders more often, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing I'm looking for in terms of feedback that can help us do something better. That's valuable. Feedback that just tells us how great we are. It's nice to hear, but it certainly isn't that valuable. I, I had somebody once tell me that I'm not listening to them. And, and I went back and I played it. And I thought I did, but it was great. It was great feedback. I don't know about on the spot like that. I, I still aired it, but I wanted to keep that going. But that was a that was an eye or an ear opener because you do, you've got to listen. It is, but it's hard too. I don't know about you if you experience this, but when you are, you're talking to somebody and then they say something that you're like, Ooh, I want to explore that. And I don't want to forget that either. So you're kind of like in the back of my head, I'll be like, okay, I, got, well, I need to remember that so that I can then ask that when he or she finishes their statement. Does that happen to you? Yeah, but I just put it in my brain and then keep listening or I write it down in my notes. But but you use a, a computer, so you're good with the computer. You're not a hand, you're not a hand note guy, right? No. Mm -mm. So. I am always online with my computer or I use my iPad. One question before I let you go. What is the one question that if you were interviewing you that you would have asked that I haven't asked? Nothing comes to mind. There's not a whole lot that I think like, why didn't they ask me? That would have been so great. I'm so good at that. I don't really think like that. So, I mean, you did a good job of asking questions that were relevant. Obviously, you knew plenty about me before I got here. So I'd say you're doing pretty well. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take it from you. Then thank you so much, Jordan. Again, appreciate your time. Oh, I wanted to give you, you're very passionate about a charity. Can you give a plug? to the, the charity? I forgot what it is you're donating to. Yeah, I uh, donate to a lot of charities, but I think the one you're probably talking about is Ava's Kitchen. Yes. And it was started by my buddy Jason Kalipa, who won the CrossFit Games in 2008 or something like that. He's just a badass dude. And his daughter was born with childhood. Or I don't know if you're born with leukemia. I'm not exactly even sure how that works, but plenty of kids get leukemia, which is blood cancer. And so he started a charity for his daughter. She's fine now. She's recovering and on the mend, so no tears necessary. But of course, that was terrifying. And there's a lot of families that have kids with health problems, and they don't have $2 million in liquid assets and making a bunch of money each month from their chain of gyms or whatever it was. And his thing was, there are so many people out there that don't have the resources to cope with it. And one of the reasons we were able to cope with it was because he had a great business. So Ava's Kitchen seeks to not only research and help out with childhood leukemia, but also I think it helps the parents that have children that are afflicted by this. Because imagine you're working a normal job or a, even a minimum wage job and your kid gets this. Now what? You've got to go stay at hotels near the hospital and you're flying your kid out to get treatment. I mean, it, it just breaks you. So this charity seeks to aid with that because the last thing you should be worried about when your kid is sick is how you're going to pay for things. Well, that, I love what you're doing. I think that's excellent. Uh, big shout out to Ava's Kitchen and uh, hopefully other people that are listening to the show get a chance to check it out and make a donation. So again, Jordan, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for making it happen today. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, 
Then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.